I'm excited to be back. I haven't been here in a few weeks. I think it's about a, been about a month, and I'm, I was looking forward to hanging out with you guys tonight, and then I'm going to be back next week, which I'm really excited about. Uh, during the last few weeks, I've just been hanging out with the family, been working on the house, all that kind of good stuff. This is what we do for fun when we get older. And... Um, and it's been quite a challenge because as I've been hanging out with my family, I've had time um, to be able to reflect a little bit on my life and kind of slow down and say, okay, what's going on? What's my, what's, what's my life? Where am I headed? All that kind of good stuff. And one of the learnings that I have had uh, as I had some time off was looking at um, how my life has progressed. As I look back to maybe, you know, 15-year-old Cody all the way up through the years, I kind of go, wow, life has become so much more enjoyable. And I think that that's the way that it's supposed to be, is as you get older, if you follow God's plan, um, life becomes more enjoyable. And it really has for me. But the other thing that I've also learned is with a more enjoyable life also comes a more complicated life is every stage along the way has become, has been more enjoyable. It's been better than the last life stage, but it's also become increasingly complicated. So for example, uh, when I was young and I was single, let's say a college student, um, I really only had one responsibility to pass all of my classes as a student. But then uh, Amy and I met and we eventually get married. And although that was incredible and it's much more enjoyable than being single, um, it also is more complicated because now I have to think about her. I have to think about her needs and we have now everything combined. And so it's just not about me anymore. And then if you fast forward a little bit more, we have kids that enter into the picture and kids bring a whole nother level of satisfaction and joy into your life, but a whole bunch of complications as well. Is now your life before at one point was about you, and then it was about us as a, a couple, and now it's about them. You don't even really get to think about yourself all that much anymore because you're so focused on the kids. And so with all this incredible joy comes a lot of complications. And so for the last few weeks, one of the um, complications is watching my kids transition from one life stage to the next. Because again, as they get older, we're having more and more fun together because we can relate on different levels, but it also becomes more and more complicated. And so when they were both newborns, it was really fun. You get to watch them and you're like, oh, look at you. You just, you're cute, you know, and they just lay there and you get to watch TV and they're not going anywhere, right? And then they start running around and then it gets really complicated and they start hurting themselves. And then, and now we're in this stage in which we can relate even more. We can have great conversations. We have so much fun. In fact, during worship just now, they were next door just dancing and partying like rock stars. Ezra is halfway to being um, a, a rock star already. He had like one shoulder out. He's wow, you know, doing stage dives and stuff. He's awesome. But here's the complication is as they're getting older, I'm now entering into a place in which we have to figure out what does discipline look like? Is um, before all they do is lay there, they sleep, they eat, they poop. That's it, right? They're living a good life. But now they're able to get themselves in trouble. And so we have to figure out how do we navigate through disciplining. And so the last couple of weeks, we have really been confronted with this, is uh, we have now children who um, are able to get in a lot of trouble. And I've shared some of those stories with you and Sienna cut her hair off and all that kind of good stuff. But we had one this last week in uh, which my daughter, she wanted to go and she wanted to ride scooters. And uh, my wife was about to lose her mind. And so I said, okay, kids, let's go outside. Mommy's having a, a bad day. And so they go out and we're doing scooters and she's making dinner. And when it's dinner time, I say, okay, Sienna, let's go. It's time to get inside. And she looks at me and she just goes, <laughs> Right? And she, she literally turns around and starts scootering away from me. And I'm like, oh, and I, I, this literally came out of my mouth. I'm like, oh, no, she didn't. 
And so I start chasing after her down the street. She sees me. She's scootering even faster. She's going to get away from me, which I'm thinking, what is your game plan here? You know, like, what's your long-term plan? You going to run away from home? Good luck, kid. Um, and so she's running away, and I, I kind of get the speed walk going really quick, and I try to, like, hit the back of her scooter to stop it, you know, but I'm glad I didn't because she would have just face-planted. But I eventually get up to her, and I grab her, and I'm like, you are dead meat, right? And I grab her, and she's still at this point no uh, remorse, nothing. She goes, no bones. She goes, burp. And I'm like, you're kidding. You're not going to, I have to drag her home with the scooter in one hand, her on the other. And I'm literally dragging her down the sidewalk and she's, no, I don't want to go home. I don't want to go home. And I'm thinking all the neighbors are going to call CPS now because, you know, I'm dragging my child down. And so I take her in and I put her in timeout and she is kicking and screaming. She's trying to kick me in the face. She's trying to get out of timeout. And I'm just going, what is, demon, get out right now, right? There's something wrong with this child. And so we go through this whole thing, and I, I actually end up calling my mom, and I go, look, I know you had a child like this, my sister. Um, <laughs> what? <laughs> I'm like, how did you deal with this? You know, what did you do? And so we're talking through it. She's laughing. She thinks it's so funny. And and so we have a talk, and I tried, okay, Sienna, you can't do that. And so the next day, um, much better behavior. She's a little bit more calm and everything. And so it's time for a nap time. And I put her down for a nap time. Or I think, no, no, I just put her, yeah, ready for nap time or, no, bedtime. And she is not supposed to have a binky, a pacifier, right? She's too old for this. You've got to cut that out. But she always sneaks it. I caught her the other day in the middle of the night climbing up into a cabinet where she knew that there was a binky so she could steal it and take it to bed with her. And so I said, um, Sienna, I'm missing a binky. Like, not me personally, but we're missing a binky. Um, do you know where it is? And I know that it's in her bed, right? I know that she's hidden it. And she looks at me completely straight faces like, Daddy, I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm like, oh, dang. Uh you know what, Sina, are you sure? And I give her like three opportunities. Are you sure you don't know? Daddy, I have no idea what you're talking about right now. I would never do anything like that. And so I walk over and I rip open the blanket and it goes right there. And she's just like, eh, what are you going to do? You know? <laughs> I thought, oh my gosh, my child has no conscience. She has no conscience. She might be a sociopath, I think, at this point. I'm not sure. But no conscience. And I'm like, okay, well, now, you know, you're in trouble. You can't get out. You know, I'm taking away X, Y, and Z. And she's like, mm, what are you going to do? You know, it's like thug life. You know, it's like, what? what? What is happening right now? <laughs> and so as, uh, as I am in, enjoying parenting and as I'm enjoying life more and more, it's becoming increasingly complicated. Now, here's the parallel is as a Christian and as a pastor and as someone who reads the Bible, the same thing happens when I read the Bible, is the more I learn about the Bible, the more I start to enjoy it because I see all the interconnectedness and all the cool stuff and the depth, and I look, but it becomes increasingly complicated because as I learn more about it, I learn its depth, but I also learn its complexity. And so tonight, I'm going to jump into a verse, and we're going to get back into Matthew just for tonight and, uh, and look at a verse. But in this verse, I'm going to tell you, it is going to get deep and complicated pretty quickly. And so if you're not a Bible person, I'm going to try to explain this as easy as I can. We've been going through the book of Matthew for a long time. This just happens to be the verse that um, we landed on tonight. And so I want to go through, and I want to do it kind of like, um, kind of like the, do you remember the board game Clue? Do you remember that board game where it was like, I don't know if it's still around anymore, but you would try to solve a murder in a mansion, and so you go through and you collect these clues, and you try to figure out like who did it, and what room, and then what did they use, and you remember this game? 
Are we nodding? No, you guys played video games. Okay, fine. Yes, oh, you guys do. Thank you. 25 and up. All right, here we go. Just kidding. Frick. You guys are beautiful. Um, so here's what I want to do, is I want to treat this passage kind of like the, the game Clue, is I want to go through and I want to ask certain questions, just the real basic questions. Like, uh, who are we talking about here? Why are they talking about it? What are they going to do? Um, how is it going to happen? We're going to answer all of those questions as we go through to try to make sense of this, I'm going to admit, very complicated or seemingly complicated uh, passage. So in the book of Matthew, and if you don't know, now a Bible person, the book of Matthew is in the New Testament. So we have two different uh, kind of sections of the Bible, the Old Testament, New Testament. New Testament is about Jesus' life, ministry, death, resurrection, and then all the implications that follow. The Old Testament is the nation of Israel. It's about, it's about creation. It's about the prophets. It's about kings. It's about all these stories about God working in the world through um, different people and, and nation, and then, of course, a promise that we're going to talk about tonight. And... Um, and in Matthew, we see the stories of Jesus' life, and Jesus' life and ministry and death and, and, and resurrection. And so tonight, I want to look at this passage in Matthew 12, verse 15. So Matthew 12, verse 15. Okay, here's what it says. So it says, aware of this. So if you go to the verse right before this, it's referring to the verse right before where Jesus just did some miracles. He was healing some people, but he did it on the Sabbath. And the Sabbath is a holy day. It's where you're supposed to take the day off. And so the Pharisees, who are the religious leaders of Jesus' day, saw this and they start getting angry because Jesus has broken their religious law. He healed somebody on the Sabbath. And so now they're beginning to plot to how to kill Jesus. So aware of this, Jesus, of the plot and, and the disruption, Jesus withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him, and he healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about him. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Or Isaiah. So um, what is happening here is Jesus is healing people. He's telling them, don't say anything to anybody because I have this ultimate game plan that I'm trying to play out and you're going to mess it up if you get too much commotion going about me. And so if you look back to this, this prophet Isaiah, we find that he is about 700 years before Jesus. And he talks to, and this is kind of what prophets used to do, is they would talk to the nation of Israel for the most part, and they would say, hey, you guys are supposed to be God's chosen people. You're supposed to follow God, but you're screwing up pretty royally. And so I am here to warn you. I'm kind of God's mouthpiece, and I'm here sent by God to tell you either straighten up or God's going to punish you. Bad things are coming your way unless you turn from your wickedness and you go back to God and you start following him again. And so we see a bunch, and this is called the, the, the cycle of Israel, the apostasy, apostasy it's a cycle. And, um, and we see this throughout the Old Testament of Israel rebelling, a prophet coming, saying straighten up, they either do or they don't, and if they do, uh, they're good with God. If they don't, they end up getting uh, some kind of punishment. And so the prophet Isaiah comes along, and he says, okay, you guys need to straighten up. And then at the very end, it's a pretty long book, at the very end, he starts prophesying, he starts predicting that God is going to send this Messiah. And this is actually one of the main themes that we're going to see in the Old Testament, especially uh, is important for the, for the Jews of the day, is there is going to be this guy, he's going to come and he's going to save God's people. 
He's going to come to the nation of Israel, and he is going to bring uh, redemption. He's going to bring healing and restoration. He's going to be able to help this broken relationship between God and man, and between man and, 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 and other people, and he's going to be able to come in this power and bring the healing and hope that they're all waiting for. And you got to understand the context is Israel has been through a lot at this point. Israel has become its own nation, has become uh, this great nation who loves God. And then we go into these different cycles where they screw up royally and then they get dominated by these different kingdoms and these different rulers. And so at this point in the first century where Jesus is speaking, the Jewish people are being ruled over by the Romans. And so they think when the Messiah comes, he's going to set us free from this political oppressors that we have. And so Isaiah begins to prophesy about this coming Messiah. And what happens in this verse, right next to in this next line, is Jesus begins to quote Isaiah, specifically Isaiah 42. And so if you have your Bibles, we're actually going to go to Isaiah 42, where Jesus is quoting the scripture. So Isaiah 42, verse 1. And this is, what, uh, this is the who part, all right? So this is the who of our clue. <laughs> That's a rhyme. Um, Isaiah 42, 1, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him. So this is one of many prophecies that Isaiah says in which there is going to be this Messiah who's going to come, he's going to save the people, and there's going to be something unique about him. He's not going to just be a regular guy who does some incredible stuff. It says right here that God's spirit will be on him that he will be God's representative on earth in some, some way. Not like the other prophets where he comes and speaks on behalf of God, but like the embodiment somehow, God's spirit, is going to dwell in him. And we don't fully understand this until we get to Jesus, but this is who, who they're waiting for. And so when Jesus quotes this to the people in Matthew 12, what he's saying is, you know the Messiah that Isaiah was talking about 700 years ago, the one that we've all been waiting for, the one that's going to be sent by God to redeem and to save, you know that one? Well, it's actually me. Because as he quotes it, he applies it to himself and is claiming that he is, in fact, the long-awaited Messiah. Now, eventually, this is going to get him in big trouble. Eventually, this is going to get him uh, not only persecuted, but he's going to be put to death because he's claiming to be the Messiah and he's claiming to be uh, God incarnate. And so, uh, bless you, or something. Um, I don't know what you say there in hiccups. Uh, where was I? Oh, yeah, okay, next verse. <laughs> so that's the who, the Messiah, Jesus claiming to be him. Then we go to the what. What is he going to do? It says, the next verse, he says, and he will bring justice to the nations. So what is the Messiah going to do? He's going to bring justice into the world. Now, when we hear this, we hear a different justice than what they're referring to here. Because um, in the original context, in the Hebrew, justice was mishpat. And mishpat, as you know, obviously, um, is a, a primary justice. We think of a, uh, a retributive justice in which someone is getting uh, retribution for something that they've done wrong, right? So justice is served. You did something wrong, and so we have to kind of equal the scales, and, some, and you have to suffer some kind of consequence. But that's not the kind of justice that they're primarily talking about here. Yes, there will be that type of justice eventually when Jesus comes again, but he came to bring a different type of justice, the justice that he's talking about is something much bigger. It's a justice in which there is no retributive justice needed because everything is right in the world. If you imagine 
that everything in the world is the way that God intended it to be. That everybody is at peace with one another, they're at peace with themselves, and especially they're at peace with God. And so everything is working in harmony. Everything is right in the world. And so when the Bible talks about justice, it oftentimes is referring to this type of justice, to put the world back together again, to put the world the way that it was supposed to be, the way that God intended it. Now, we can ask the question, why isn't it like that now? And this is a really big question. In fact, this is one of the biggest questions that you can ask, especially if you're not a Christian. I would encourage you to think about this question because it doesn't matter if you believe in God or not. There is something within all of us that says, you know, the world's not exactly the way that it should be. There's something off about the world. There's something even off about me. I'm not the way that I should be. Like, I want to be one way, but I oftentimes fail, and I am not that type of person. We may even say that the world is really messed up, that when we look out into the world, there is tons of evil, and there is suffering, and there is pain, and this is just not how it is supposed to be. Well, one question I have is, well, how do you know how it's supposed to be? There has to be someone planning. There has to be some kind of ultimate plan, some kind of ultimate uh, um, status, some kind of ultimate um, way in which the world is supposed to be. But I think we all can agree that it's just not the way that it is supposed to be. Now, the question is why? And people have been trying to figure out the why for a really long time, and we've come up with all different kinds of conclusions. Some people say the world isn't the way that it's supposed to be because, and we've heard recently, income inequality is a reason why. If we had a society in which people had uh, the same income across the board, or at least were a lot closer, then we wouldn't have the kind of pain and suffering that we see in the world. Or some people say, well, the reason why there's pain in the world and suffering is because people just don't have enough education. That if people were more educated, then they would understand the viewpoints of others, and then there would no longer be persecution, for example. I remember uh, this last year, there was a um, a famous, uh, I think it was like a celebrity or something, and, and he said, you know, I just, I wish I could talk to ISIS and just tell him like, hey, can we just love one another? And it's like, you are an idiot. You know, that's just so stupid, because they're like, you know, all we need is, we just need more love. We just need to like each other more, and that's why the world is messed up. See, everybody's going to come up with some kind of reason why um, the world isn't the way that it's supposed to be. But let me ask you this. If there were uh, more education, economic equality, uh, a more secular society, better living environment, do you really believe that Hitler would have been a sweetheart? Do you really believe that? No, no, because there's something deeper, there's something more profound that is wrong with him, that is wrong with everyone else in the world, that is wrong with the world itself. There's something deeper than that. Because all the things that we come up with that are the issue are just really consequences. They're just really an outpouring of what's really happening. See, the Bible comes and says, you know, the reason why um, the way the, the world is messed up, the way that it is, is because we were made for a relationship with God, and through this thing called sin, we have been separated from God, and everything has been spinning out of control since then. And so the only way to fix this out of control world is if we can somehow mend the relationship with God. But the problem is, the scripture tells us that this cannot be done through good behavior, through, through thinking or acting right that there has to be a level of perfection in order to make things right with a perfect God. And so ever since then, we've just been spinning out of control. We have no solution. But Isaiah is giving a prophecy that says, actually, there's going to be someone who comes along, and they're going to be the one who's going to be able to bridge this gap between us and God, the one that's going to be able to fix the fundamental problems that we as humans have, which is sin. 
And so he goes on to describe how this person, this Messiah, is going to fix the world and put things to right. And he really describes three different ways. He says this coming king is going to be a king in three unique and distinct ways. First way is this. It says in verse 19, he will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. Okay, so this is a little bit cryptic, I will admit. And so we kind of get a bigger picture as we look at the rest of scriptures. And so what he's describing here is what many would call a servant king. This Messiah that's going to come one day, he's not just going to be a king who comes in power and control. Because if you think about, no, scratch that. If you went out into the streets right now and you said, hey, tell me the attributes of a world changer. Give me some examples of people that you believe have changed or will change the world. I would almost guarantee that people would start rattling off um, very successful businessmen, political leaders. Maybe you have some revolutionaries. Um, you, would, you would name the celebrities, the, the powerful, the rich, the famous. Those are the people that we believe are the world changers. Those are the people that control the world and get to steer the world. And yet, right here... Um, Isaiah is describing someone totally different. He's saying, you know, the person who's actually going to ultimately fix the world is not going to be like the rest of the world leaders. He's not going to be powerful. He's not going to be influential. He's not going to have lots of money or fame. In fact, he's going to come and he's going to be a servant, which is totally counterintuitive to everything that we know about power in the world. It's when we think about the people who are going to change the world, the last thing that we think about is a servant. We don't think about someone who's going and washing people's feet. We think about someone who's sitting in a boardroom or sitting in, 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 a, in, in these big, powerful towers, and they're looking at all us peons, and they're going, ha, 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 here's how I'm going to take over the world, right? Pinky in the brain. You remember that? Oof. Old school. Anyway, we never think of a servant leader. What's weird about this is, oh, so this week I watched, um, I watched uh, a documentary on Cuba, I don't know why, but I came across it, and I wanted to watch it. And so it was about the uh, Castro brothers and Jay Co che Crover Co che, and uh, you've seen them on the t-shirts before. And the way that they ended up toppling the government of Cuba was not through service, was not going, hey, guys, how can I help you? Can I mow your backyard? Can I help out? No, 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 no. These guys became revolutionaries through power. The way that they did it was they became fiercer and nastier and more gruesome, and ended up being able to kill all of, the, uh, all of the current government. This is really how most people come to power. And yet, Isaiah is describing someone who is going to be king, the most powerful person to ever live, to change the world, and the way that it's going to happen is through service. Now, these two characteristics are so different that nobody saw this coming. Because as you look through Isaiah and the prophecies about this Messiah, these two different descriptions of these people, often, for, even for Jews today, they say there's no way that's the same person. It can't be describing the same person. You cannot have a king who is going to come and change the world and also the suffering, dying, servant person. So let me give you another example. In the, the chapter right before this, Isaiah 53, there is a verse, and it says this. It says, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was 
punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. And so we have these two different descriptions. And people have been wrestling with this. This was 700 years before Jesus. So imagine hearing this, and you're a scholar, and you're going, okay, so we have the coming Messiah who's going to come and fix these. He's going to wipe out all these people who are oppressing us. But then we also have these other verses right next to him that talk about this person who's going to die, he's going to suffer, he's going to be spit on, he's going to be killed. How, how do you make sense of these? And so you know what a lot of people did? They tried to come up with some kind of symbol. Okay, so maybe this suffering servant is symbolic of the nation of Israel, somehow, some way. I don't know how that makes sense, but okay, maybe that's what it's talking about. Some of them just started to ignore it and say, well, we're not really sure what that means, but we do know what the other verses mean, that there's going to be coming this powerful Messiah. But here's the craziest thing, is when Jesus shows up 700 years after this, you see these two seemingly opposing characters become one. In Jesus. And nobody saw it coming. I don't think you realize, like, we get to look back and go, well, yeah, of course that's Jesus. Of course that makes sense. But in the day, people are going, what? How is there a suffering, dying Messiah? That doesn't make any sense. That's ridiculous. It's like the twist of all twists. It's like, whoa, how, who knew that's how this is going to end up? In fact, there's many Jews today who say, no, that can't be true. There has to be a different explanation because these things just don't make sense. And then in the person of Jesus, we see these two seemingly opposing things come together and make perfect sense. Now, here's what's interesting is if you watch uh, oftentimes secular society, they will come around to something that Jesus said a really long time ago or that he did a really long time ago. And they believe it's revolutionary. And Christians are over there going... <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's what he said. You know, like it's been 2,000 years. We've been doing this. And so one of the things that I've uh, been wit- or I, I kind of been seeing lately is business leaders, for at least the last two decades, have come up with this revolutionary idea that to be a great leader, you first need to be a great servant. And I, when the first time I heard that, I went, ha, who knew? You know, apparently he, Jesus did have something going for him there. In fact, I listened to an interview recently, and it was the former CEO of Home Depot, and he talked about how he was able to lead and lead so well in organization. I think there's over 100,000 employees, and he is the top dog out of all of them. And they said, how, how are you able to lead that many people? That's mind-boggling. And he said, well, here's how I looked at it, is most organizations, you have an, an org chart, right, in which you have the primary leader up top, and then there are all the people that report to him, then the next level, 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 level down, and it's a giant triangle, really. That's a sim- simple way of saying it. He says, you know, the way that I look at our organization is I take that org chart and I turn it upside down, and I say I am the number one servant of the organization, that I want to be the greatest and the best servant of Home Depot. And so what he does is on a weekly basis, he goes and he works in a different Home Depot store on the floors. He would walk around, he would do sales, he would do cleanup, he would just be a regular Home Depot employee because he says, that's the way that I can lead best, is from the bottom to the top. 
not from the top to the bottom. Now, if you take a leader like that, and there's something compelling about that, and you compare that to, let's say, Kanye West, okay? So we have CEO Home Depot, and we have Kanye West. How often do you think Kanye West goes and cleans floors somewhere? Zero times, right? Because he claims he is Jesus, right? (laughs) He thinks that he is a God. This is his own words. And so he couldn't, I mean, that's just, you couldn't even be bothered by someone. So which of those two people are more compelling? Which one would you like to follow? Kanye or the CEO? The CEO, right? Of course, because there's something you can admire about him because he is powerful and yet humble. He has all this power. He has all this money. He has all this influence, and yet he is totally humbled and wants to serve. Both have power. Both have influence, and yet one is humble and one serves, and that makes him much more compelling. Well, that's what Jesus is doing. Jesus has infinite power, infinite wisdom, infinite influence, and yet he comes and he becomes nothing for our sake. This should be something that not only we find shocking, but something that we find admiring. Two kingdoms uh, Jesus is kind of implementing here, or he's explaining. Jesus is showing us there is actually two kingdoms, and you can be a part of one or you can be a part of the other. And through his example of being a servant king, he is showing what it looks like to live in his kingdom instead of this other kingdom. And so in the scriptures, and we've talked about this before, there's two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of now or the kingdom of the world, and there's the kingdom of God. And Jesus comes along and he says, "Um, I'm bringing a new kingdom to the world. It's my kingdom, the kingdom of God, and here's what it looks like to live in this kingdom. And these kingdoms are totally opposed to one another. In fact, some people describe the kingdom of God when we're talking about the kingdom of the world as the upside-down kingdom because the values of the kingdom of God are the opposite values of the kingdom of now or the kingdom of the world. And so what happens is, When we think about the kingdom of now or the kingdom of the world, we think about what we want in this moment, or at least in this life. Yes, there might be an afterlife. Yeah, sure, there's probably a God, and I think if I'm a good person, he'll be all right with me, but I'm not going to worry about that, because what I'm thinking about is the here and the now. I want to live for this best life, and that's the kingdom of the world. It's a kingdom that is totally focused on today on this life, on making everything, uh, living up to to your most here and now. It's the kingdom of me. It's a kingdom where it's totally focused on your own needs. So um, you probably, you will get tired of me talking about my kids and I don't care, but um, my kids are just the, they're like the un, uh, they're like the raw, the raw, okay, they're humanity at its rawest form, meaning they haven't been influenced that much yet. I mean, they we're trying to influence them, but they really are like, they just go by their intuition and their natural desires. And so you can really see like what is at the core of humanity, you know, because they haven't had a whole lot of outside influences. It's really just who they are inside coming out. And one of their immediate things is they live for themselves. Everything, they have no desire to care for anybody besides themselves. And you see this just in the little things like, my kids will fight all the time because that's my blankie. Well, this is my space. Don't eat my cookie. It's me, 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 me. It's all about me. There's something inside of us that just cares about ourselves. That's it. And that is because we were born into and live naturally in the kingdom of me, the kingdom of the world, the kingdom of now. And Jesus comes along and he says, no, 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 no. 
there is a new kingdom. And this kingdom takes all of those values, all of those desires, and turns them upside down. And so he says, if you want to live in my kingdom, you have to go from being a person who is the ruler of your own life to now submitting your life to me and allowing me to be ruler. For, from living to yourself to living for me. From your will to my will. From a rebellion against God to reconciliation with God. From death and decay to eternal life. Everything from this world gets turned upside down in the kingdom of God. And Jesus comes as the servant king and says, let me lead the way and show you what it's like to live in this kingdom now. He's also the healing king. Verse 20, and this is, I'm going to tell you, this is going to get it's going to get deep for a second. Okay, here's what it says. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. Okay, so here's the honest truth. I do this, you do this. If you're a Bible reader and you come across a verse like this, you just go, yeah, okay, next verse. You know, because it's just, what the frick are you talking about? You know, Jesus. Hello, <laughs> this makes absolutely no sense. It's kind of like, um, for me, it's like when I hear someone t uh, speaking in Spanish, and I go, ooh, I think I got like one word out of that. You know, I think I caught one word, no idea what you're talking about, but I know that the bathroom is this way, right? Like that's all I really got out of it. And that's kind of how I feel when I read this stuff, is I go, ooh, yeah, I, okay, justice. I know, I know that word now. <laughs> you know, I got that one. So here's what he's saying. We're gonna break it down. He's saying this. Um, first, he's talking about, in this context, he's talking about a bruise. And the specific, there's a very specific kind of bruise that is being referenced here. And it's more of a bruise that you would have when you kind of, uh, when you get hurt and there's internal bleeding. So when I was growing up, I used to dirt bike and do all this kind of stuff. And my mom would freak out because I had a couple incidences where I'd fall and I would have the handlebars hit me like in the kidneys, you know? And I'm like, oh, I'm fine, you know, walk it off. And my mom's like, well, what if there's internal bleeding? You can't see it from the outside, but you're dying on the inside. And I'm like, Thanks, mom. <laughs> you know, like, you know, you're an encourager. And, and so that's really what this is referring to, is it's referring to some kind, of, um, some kind of wound that internally you are crushed, and yet there may be no external signs of what's happening. Okay, so that's the specific kind of bruise. And then when it says a bruised reed, what it's talking about is a stalk of grain that has been bent and so internally, it's not able to produce. It's been, it's been broken inside. And yet it hasn't been bent so much that it's broken in two. And so it's still whole, and yet internally, it's totally broken. And so what, okay, so let's put this together. What is Jesus trying to say here? Or what is the prophecy he's trying to say about Jesus? He's trying to say that Jesus, this, uh, this healing king, is going to come, and he is going to see the brokenness in everybody. Even if there's no external signs, he's going to look at each and every one of us and see our brokenness and know exactly what's wrong. Some of us are really good at hiding our brokenness. We can look like we have it all put together. We can, we can make the best Instagram posts and we can look like we are living it up. And yet internally, there is so much brokenness. But then it also says this. It says, not only will he be able to identify the brokenness that maybe nobody else sees, but he's going to know exactly what to do to help fix it. He's, he, he sees that you're fragile. He sees that you're broken. And oftentimes, people who are trying to help you can end up hurting you in the process, but he will never do that because he's the ultimate healer. He knows exactly what you need and when you need it. So when I was uh, in my early 20s, and I've shared a little bit of my story before, is I... Uh, 
I, I've always had OCD, and if you don't know much about OCD, it's not just like, oh, you clean your hands a lot. No, no, that's not actually what OCD is. Um, that's a, maybe a, a compulsive uh, action that you have. But for me, it, was, it manifested itself in different ways. And one of the ways was these intrusive thoughts that I just couldn't get out of my head. If you ever think about something like, you know, you see a car accident and you think, oh my gosh, what if that happened to my family? And then you keep driving and you probably forget about it. Well, I could have moments where I go, oh my gosh, what if that happened to my family? And then for like six weeks, I would be con six weeks, like constantly thinking, what if that happened? What if that happened? What if that happened? What if that happened? And, and the way that it's described by psychologists is you kind of, everyone has a transmission in their mind where they can shift from one thought to another. But a person with OCD, oftentimes um, they will get a thought and then their transmission breaks and they just can't shift from that thought to the next thought. And it could last for weeks, months, even years where it constantly is cycling in your mind. Well, I didn't know all of this stuff, but when I was in my 20s, I had one of these moments in which I could not get this specific thought out of my head. And so I went to some different people in my life whom I loved and I care for, and they, they very much want the best for me, some of my family members and things like that. And each one of them had different advice for me. So, uh, for example, and you can imagine this, uh, if I went to some friends and I said, man, I'm really struggling with this, I just, and they, they may say, well, you know what, you just need to go out and have some fun, you need to go and get your mind off of things, that's really the problem, you know, so let's go to the gym, or let's go hang out, or let's go whatever, and that's their solution to the problem. Or I could go to a pastor, and he's like, well, you know what, you really need to pray through this, you need to fast, you need to, and they're not wrong, right, but maybe that's not exactly what I need. Or I go to a therapist and they say, okay, well, let's talk it out. Let's talk about your fears and let's talk about these things. Or I go to a doctor and they say, well, what you really need is you need medication. Now, I don't know what the correct answer is for anybody. I knew what the correct answer was for me. But along the way, as I was asking people for advice, I would try each of those things. And instead of helping, it actually hurt because it delayed the healing process. And I just continued to get worse and worse and worse and worse. See, these people, they wanted to help me get better. They wanted to help me find healing, but they didn't know. They didn't know what the brokenness inside was all about. And so eventually, I started to spiral downward until I really had kind of a meltdown for a while in my life. For months, I was just incapacitated because I had this internal meltdown, which I couldn't deal with. And eventually, I was able to find someone who knew what to do, and they knew, knew the solution, and they knew how to help fix it. And, and I got the, the hope and the healing and, and uh, the right uh, solution to my, to my problem. But see, this is what the scripture is addressing. It says, you know, there's a lot of people out there who may understand that you're broken. They may be able to see that you're broken, even if you're hiding it. But that doesn't mean that they know how to fix it. Jesus is the only healer who knows our brokenness and also knows how to make us whole again. And that's what, this, that's what this prophecy is saying, is every single one of us have brokenness. And we may see it, we may not see it, we may have indications of how to fix it, but Jesus is the only one that can actually bring the healing that we need. And then finally, the last verse says that Jesus will be the suffering king. Isaiah 42, 4 says, he will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. Okay, now this is kind of crazy because I'm going to try to put some puzzle pieces together for us here. What's happening here is in this verse and the verse before it, we have the same words um, in the original context, but they're not the original here. And so right here, we have this word falter. Well, in the previous verse, this word falter is the same word for snuffed out. Okay, so killed. And discouraged is the same word in the previous as bruised 
or crushed. So if we put this together, this is saying that the suffering servant will experience the same thing. The suffering servant will be bruised, crushed, and even killed, but it will not stop him from bringing justice or making the world right again. Do you see this? This is crazy. This is 700 years before Jesus. And we have these clues of who this Messiah is going to be. So let me give you one more really quick. Is Genesis 3, we see Adam and Eve creation, and then we see the fall, where Adam and Eve rebel against God because they're tempted by Satan through, you know, through the serpent, Satan, symbolic, whatever, okay? We see the fall where everything goes wrong in the world, where people are totally disconnected from God and become cosmic orphans. And in Genesis 3.15, where everything is going south, we see this strange little comment that God makes. What he does is he's talking to the serpent, and when he does, he says this. He says, I'm going to give Eve a descendant, and this descendant will crush your head and bruise his heel. That makes no sense at all, right? What does that even mean? So the serpent tempts man, man falls, and then God punishes the serpent, and in this punishment, he says, there is going to be a descendant, there's going to be a person, a man, who's going to come and is going to crush you, remember, representative, Satan, going to crush Satan, and yet you are also going to harm him. So the image that's trying to be painted here is one of, uh, let's imagine that you and I were out there, and we're camping, and we're hanging out, and we're having a great time, and, uh, and this extremely poisonous snake is coming into our camp. And we really have to make a split decision. Somebody's going to get bit. Somebody has to do something. And so someone steps up and goes and crushes this snake. But as they do, the snake bites them and they die for their friends. This is the image that it's trying to paint for us. Now, do you see anything that's analogous to what we see a few thousand years later with Jesus? A descendant, Jesus, who will crush Satan, meaning defeat evil, for, for once and for all, and yet evil will end up killing him as well. This is from the very beginning. This is thousands of years before Jesus. None of it makes sense. It all sounds super strange until we get to the cross. And see, the cross makes sense of all these clues, all these little pointers, because when Jesus enters, now we start to understand, oh, that's what that meant. That's what Genesis was about. Oh, see, okay, that's what Isaiah was talking about. It's not two people, it's one person. And the king, the way that he becomes the king and the way he rules is through his suffering and through being a servant. Oh, it all makes sense now. And see, I think that's kind of the point of being a Christian is when Jesus enters into our life, the pieces start to come together and it starts to make sense. All the things that seem so disconnected and seemed so, um, seem so random, all of a sudden start to make sense in our life, where we go, oh, that's it. See, I see a lot of people, and they say, well, you know, it's just meant to be. The stars were aligned, and they say these things, and what they mean is, hey, somehow my life was supposed to work out like this, but they have no reason to believe that. But when we invite Jesus into the equation, the things that were random and seemingly um, just senseless start to come together and become this picture in which we never could have imagined, but all of a sudden becomes something beautiful. Let's pray. Lord God, we, uh, I, man, when I look at the scriptures, and I've been looking at the scriptures for a while, 
every time I get in there, I just go, whoa, that was, that's mind-blowing that you had this plan from the beginning, that you had all these pieces and all these clues and all these things that were pointers to you, to Jesus being the answer. And so, Lord God, so many of our stories are the same way in which we can look back at our life and there were so many steps along the way that didn't make sense and there's so many clues and all these pointers and it's only when we come into a relationship with you that it starts to make sense, that life starts to make sense, that our purpose and that our meaning and that all these things, these events in our life, they start to come together and they start to become a cohesive picture. And so, Lord God, if there is somebody in this room who is just trying to figure out what all these puzzle pieces mean, that they would come and they would bring them to you so that you could put them together. And so, Lord God, we thank you, and we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.